Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last week at the age of 87. Members of the public generally knew her as the notorious RBG, or as a tiny but mighty figure in the courtroom. For her law clerks, though, Ginsburg was a warm and thoughtful role model and mentor. We're so lucky to have three of her law clerks with us to talk about the time they spent working with Ginsburg, as well as their relationships with her after they finished their clerkships. Kelsey Brown-Corcoran is the head of the Supreme Court practice at Oreck, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. Lori Alvino McGill is an appellate lawyer who clerked for Justice Ginsburg during the October term 2005. And Amanda Tyler is the Shannon Cecil Turner Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Um, Let's start at at the beginning. Um, Talk about how you came to be a clerk for Justice Ginsburg. What was the interview process like? You're all relatively, you know, young lawyers going to talk to Justice Ginsburg, who was not much of a small talker. What was the interview like? Kelsey, yeah. yeah. So I I was actually a little bit older. I was pregnant with my son when I clerked for Judge Tatel in the D.C. Circuit, so I waited until after my kids were born before I applied to clerk on the court. Um, and it's pretty well documented that when Justice Ginsburg uh, was recommended to clerk for Justice Frankfurter, by the Dean of Harvard Law School, that he was initially willing to uh, consider a female clerk when he found out that she was a mother. That was just too much. He could not have a mother in chambers. And so she missed out on the opportunity to clerk on the Supreme Court. Uh, And so that uh, interview was just incredible in so many ways. I I mean, to to see her in person, I, I still am not over that. And it was almost a decade ago. And I ended up working with her for a year, but I can still remember walking into chambers and seeing her there in real life. Um, but we ended up talking about my kids. I, I brought them up at some point uh, and she smiled and asked how old they were. And then a few minutes later offered me the clerkship. And it was always, it was, it was very special to me. I think it was a joy to her to be able to give that opportunity to so many of the clerks um, that, that, that she lost out. And I was just one of many clerks who came to, to chambers, both male and female, who already had kids. Um, so it was a particular piece of it that was special to me. Lori, how about you? Um, well, I, it's hard to follow that story, Kelsey, but I, I have a couple of um, sharp memories from my interview process. The first was, so when I was extended the interview, I was clerking on the DC circuit for Douglas H. Ginsburg, no relation. Um, but they were friends, uh, but they come from very different ideological backgrounds, let's say. Um, so the first thing I remember is uh, DHG coming into my little uh, part of Chambers and letting me know that Justice Ginsburg had called him thinking about me. Um, and I was elated, of course. I was really excited. And he said, but so here's the thing. I think she's going to call you and extend an interview. Um, and I think if she interviews you, she's going to hire you. And he looks very serious. And I'm like, well, that sounds great. And he says, well, you understand if she extends an offer to you, you have to accept. I said, yeah, that sounds okay. great. <laughs> and then he looks at me like, well, Lori, 
I just want to make sure that there's not some other justice you would prefer to cook for. And I looked at him like, wow, you had no idea there was one of us here in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was a sleeper liberal with uh, nothing to indicate as such on my resume. But um, so he was surprised, as surprised that I was excited as I was surprised um, that she was interested. The interview process was stressful. As you'd imagine, I was, you know, busy on the DC circuit. I was also studying for the bar exam. And I remember studying a lot for the interview. And I got there and I could not have been prepared for the first question that she asked me, which was, Lori, we've had a lot of trouble with our pianos at the court. And I have to tell you, I've just secured the most beautiful new grand piano for the West Conference Room. The reason we have a new piano is the old piano would not stay in tune. Would you mind going downstairs and playing the piano after we're done here and letting me know if it sounds okay? So, you know, on my resume, I had indicated I was a pianist, but I was not prepared to play the piano for a justice of the United States Supreme Court. <laughs> and I spent the entire 45-minute period with her not appreciating the experience or, um, like, really present in our conversation, but instead I was thinking but my nails aren't trimmed and I haven't touched the piano in 12 months. And what could I possibly play for the justice? That would be impressive. It turned out um, mercifully that after our conversation, she just sent me downstairs with one of her current clerks, Ginger Anders, who I knew from law school. And I was able to, in relative privacy, test out uh, the grand piano and report back to her when she called to extend the offer that the piano was in tune and sounded great. What did you play? Um, I actually I played a pop song. I played um, Possession by Sarah McLaughlin because I hadn't played anything classical in a long time, but I had a keyboard in my apartment. And that was the kind of thing I was playing those days. <laughs> That's what I did. Amanda, how was your interview? was more nervous for that job interview than any job interview I've ever had in my life. And yet what was really nice, and I've heard the others say this as well, she put me at ease right away. And it really took, it, it took a lot of the nerves out of the situation. My interview story is actually less about the interview and more about what happened immediately after. So very fortunately, she offered me the job at the end of the interview, and I, of course, accepted on the spot. And I went back to the airport to fly back to Boston. I was in school still, and I called my grandparents from the airport to tell them I was very close with my grandparents, and neither of them had gone to college. It became immediately apparent in the conversation they had no idea who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, and they didn't understand the enormity of this incredible opportunity. And so I then had to explain to them who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, and I remember I said something to the effect of, Grandma, you don't understand. I was only able to go to law school because she changed everything in this country for women and, and for both genders, really. <laughs> Excuse me. And I remember my grandmother saying, my God, she sounds amazing, Amanda. I'm so, so proud that you will go and clerk for her. So this whole story connects back. It's not a story about me. I wrote the justice a letter the next day saying how excited I was and how honored I was to be able to go and clerk for her. And I decided to tell her, write out the story about my grandparents and the conversation and specifically what my grandmother had said. The justice wrote me back and sent a card for my grandmother with a letter to my grandmother, which my grandmother then framed and hung in her living room. So that was pretty special. That's a great story. 
What was it like working with her sort of on a day-to-day basis? I feel like, you know, the stories you hear from clerks about life at the Supreme Court, that different chambers have sort of different personalities depending on the justice. What was it like working with her? You know, it was great, but she didn't let anything slide. She had the most exacting of standards and uh, she herself had an incredible work ethic. I mean, she was a workhorse and she never wasted a minute. She used every minute for constructive purposes. And so you had you had to measure up. You had to do your best. I, I wrote something up recently where I said, uh, clerking for her was like playing with Michael Jordan. She she pulled you up and made you perform at your best level. I, I was not a pianist. I was an athlete. So <laughs> I use sports analogies. I'm like, Lori. Um, she was. She was the Michael Jordan, the Leo Messi, Megan Rapinoe uh, of of athletes in 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 the sense that she she really made you rise to the occasion and meet her standards. Or certainly die trying, which which I I certainly did when I <laughs> when my co-clerks did. The other thing though was that just the meticulous care with which she she took that she took with her opinions. So you would give her a draft and she would give it back really marked up, but then walk through. Uh, why she thought you should change this. And I'm sure Lori and Kelsey are going to say this. I, I was such a better writer at the end of it, although I'm, you know, I'm still trying to measure up. Lori? I, I would agree with all of that. I mean, I guess I would add, um, at least when I, I was clerking, she ran her chambers in, in quite a formal manner. I remember exchanging handwritten notes and typewritten notes as a sort of regular thing instead of knocking on her door um, because we were all so respectful of her process. And if she had her door closed and she was working on something, we wouldn't want to interrupt. Um, and she was sort of old-fashioned in that way, and we all sort of abided um, by that, as you'd expect. I think, you know, her working process sort of, um, and her manner of being sort of earned her a reputation for being cold. I think some, some people who didn't work with her directly may have had the impression that she was you know, standoffish or you know, too formal or, or not, not a warm person. And I, I can't emphasize enough how, how different that is from you know, the, the person who I got to know. She, I think she was a deeply shy person, which is somewhat surprising given her you know, chosen profession and her you know, being drawn to being this trailblazer, an absolute um, iconic heroine uh, for justice. She, she was a very shy person, but when you got to know her, she was also fiercely loyal. And we saw that sort of in the day-to-day, you know, workings of chambers and then after um, the clerkship and the way that she really took care to continue the relationships that she formed during during that year with the clerk. Kelsey, do you have anything to add? Um, so I think uh, kind of pairing together what Lori and Amanda said, um, what Lori described uh, is exactly my memory of the the pool memo process or bench memos, there was lots of handwritten notes back and forth. And we each had our own little kind of folder area where she would put her comments and then we'd bring them back to her. Um, It was the one job I've had in my adult life where my good penmanship actually was uh, an attribute. Uh, uh, But then as Amanda was saying, when you got to the opinion writing process, it was much more intimate. You would sit in her office she would outline what she had in mind for the opinion. You would draft it and then you would give it to her in a printed copy that was triple spaced. So there's plenty of room for her to kind of do her 
her edits by hand. And then when she was done, as Amanda said, you would be called into chambers and you would sit at her table with her and she would go over every single edit and explain why she had done it. And it wasn't for her benefit. It was for ours to kind of teach us how to become better writers. Uh, and so I will always be grateful for that. I think we all left the clerkship with this just masterclass on um, persuasion and, and writing. Uh, and yeah, so grateful that she she took the time to do that. You've already talked about some really special stories, but you know, do you have an, what is your fondest memory perhaps of Justice Ginsburg as a, a mentor or a friend? Lori? Is it okay if I have two? <laughs> you, yeah, yes, 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 indeed. Um, I'll, I'll start with the one that's later in time. So um, the thing that sort of sticks with me and, and is the perfect illustration of how much she cared for her law clerks um, as people is that um, about a year after my clerkship, a little bit more than a year, I gave birth to my first child. And one of the only things I remember about that experience, because it was a long, drawn out um, kind of uh, marathon, is that I got a phone call from the justice who was, I believe, in Italy at the time. She called my hospital room to make sure that she told me that she knew I had had a cesarean section after a long labor and that it was really important that I surrounded myself with people who knew how much help I needed and that it was a major surgery and I needed to take care of myself. Like nothing to do with, and, and are you you know planning to go back to work? And you know, what does the law firm think of this? It was completely about the care and feeding of you know a person that, that she cared about. And it was incredibly meaningful um, to me. And I think it, it sort of just, illustrates the person um, she was. Uh, the other memory I will share, um, I shared recently on Facebook with our uh, friend Sasha Volek, who some of you know. Um, I remember her saying to me at the end of the term, right after our, um, our law clerk musical, parody, which I think is still a tradition at the court. I, I had the, uh, the role of a, an advocate who was um, delivering her first argument before the court and the first argument before the brand new Justice Alito. And um, Sasha had written up an adaptation of Frank Sinatra's um, Mona Lisa. And it, the new lyrics were, Sam Alito, Sam Alito, you're my fifth vote. And so I, it was my job to serenade him in this little parody show. And at the end, it came up to me she grabbed my hands and she looked right at me and she said, Lori, with a voice like that, how did you ever become a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, knowing, you know, what a, an opera aficionado she is and, and how much her musical opinion um, means, I, I couldn't decide if it was a huge compliment or she was telling me that I should have kept my night job. <laughs> I couldn't decide. <laughs> Um, but I still, I tell that story with great fondness. And every time I see um, Justice Alito, we talk about it. Um, it was a moment that was uh, unforgettable. Kelsey? So this is not poignant, um, but it still makes me laugh. Uh, so in chambers, there's the, we, we had our, you know, our landline telephones. And if calls came from other parts of the court, there was a, a kind of a regular sounding ring 
But if the justice called you, it was like a different, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, it was just a different tone. It was the, the justice calling. And we all would have this kind of Pavlovian response um, to that ring because it was, why? Why is she calling? What's happening? What, what did I do? Um, and not, not because of anything she did. She was always, she was not a scary boss, but but, but someone that impressive, uh, you just, you wanted to, to do your best all the time. So uh, this was when we were working with her to help her come up with questions for the Shakespeare kind of mock trial that is is done every year. And you're supposed to come up with kind of funny things for her to ask about. And so I had put together some questions and I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but it was some sort of joke about George Clooney and his unrequited loves. I think this was right around when he had gotten married. And so the phone rang with that kind of jarring ring and I picked it up and she said, can you explain this part about George Clooney to me. And I was like, oh, well, Justice, he's an actor. Um, he's been in a lot of movies. Um, and I kind of go on for a couple of sentences and she stops me. She goes, I know who George Clooney is. I just, why is this funny? Um, and, I, and I don't know that I had a good response, but you know, with her, you just kind of never knew where she was at in terms of cultural uh, awareness. And apparently I misjudged that one. She, she knew who he was. <laughs> That's great. Amanda? Oh my gosh, so many memories. And one of the really fun things is getting together right now with other clerks and hearing their great stories. Um, I'll share these. Um, when I was clerking for her, uh, as Kelsey's story uh, mentioned, you would sometimes help her prepare for the many, many speeches she was invited to give. And I clerked for her before she was the notorious RBG. And she was in huge demand then. I can't imagine after uh, being a clerk. But she was giving <laughs> one speech, excuse me, about um, the, the progress women had made in the workforce. And she called me in and she wanted me to work with her on it. And she said, you know, this is really incredible that she said this. She said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much older than your generation and I, I don't really have a handle on what the current issues are. So will you go around and get together with all the women law clerks and talk to them? and come back and give me a real sense of what the biggest issues are that you and your peers um, in your age cohort and your career place cohort are facing and thinking about and worried about. And I thought that was pretty amazing because um, she kind of wrote the book on how to figure out how women you know, can succeed and overcome barriers. And she built so many roads of equality, but she was one constantly still trying to to open up those opportunities and break down barriers. And two, she was, and this is this comes out in her jurisprudence, she was trying to understand the experience of people who weren't in the exact same position as her. Um, <laughs> two other stories, I mean, I could tell so many more, but two others that immediately come to mind. She uh, cited me once in an opinion, some of my scholarship. I was very, very excited. It was the first time I was cited by the court. I remember I'm laughing because I told my spouse and he said, it doesn't count if it's Justice Ginsburg. She was just being nice. <laughs> That's kind of our marriage. But she autographed the opinion with a really sweet inscription, uh, one of the slip opinions and sent it to me because I think she knew that was the first time I'd been cited. So that I have it framed in my office. It was really, really sweet. A, a, a final story is just there was a period, I, I, I'm so moved by Lori's story. And there was a period in my life where I had, uh, I was going through something that was very, very different, difficult, and it was 
parallel to something that she had been through in her life around the same time. And there were some difficult months. And in the middle of that, she reached out. She she knew and she reached out. She wrote me a really beautiful letter about how I couldn't see it now, but that decades later, I would look back and actually find much to appreciate from the experience once I got to the other side. And one, she was right, of course, because she was profoundly wise. Two, that was incredibly kind and generous because of the parallels. I, I knew there was wisdom in those words, and that really carried me through some very difficult periods. That actually sort of touches on my next question. So I guess I'll start with Kelsey. Um, you know, Lori and Amanda have both talked a little bit about sort of their relationship with the justice after they left the clerkship. And, and you all can, of course, talk about more. But sort of what was it like? Does it change once you leave the court and you're no longer the, the clerk? You're a former clerk? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's one of she has was was very accessible. So you could always, anytime you wanted, email her secretary and ask to come visit her. Um, and as as Lori and Amanda point out, she would reach out to us um, when she knew things, significant things were going on in our lives. So after I had my first Supreme Court argument, it wasn't long before I kind of got a, I got a note from her uh, about what a great job I had done. And when I came into chambers later, she kind of grabbed my hands and she was said, oh, you were super. Uh, she loved the word super. But I, what I what really changed for me was my ability to be present in the moment with her during the clerkship. I just felt like I always wanted to to, to do a good job and to impress her and to, to live up to her standards. And so I, I remember being in chambers one time and just sitting with her maybe a couple of years ago. And we were talking about travel and the kids and what she was up to. And it, I said, I, I just I remember thinking in my head, this is extraordinary what I'm getting to do right now to just sit with her and talk for 30 minutes. Um, and so I think that was the real difference. Um, you know, thinking, gosh, I don't cry when I say this, but I think the last time I saw her um, was in the winter before the pandemic started. Uh, and I had moved for someone's admission that day. If you go to the court a lot, um, this is something where you stand up and you just um, you you get a script that tells you what to say, uh, and there's there's not a lot that goes on. It's always granted by the chief justice. But I went to visit her afterwards, uh, and she said, completely deadpan to me, "You did a super job moving for mission," and I laughed. I said, "Thanks, Jess. Uh, thanks, Justice." Um, uh, but it was she was clearly being sarcastic uh, because there's not any way to mess up moving for someone's admission. So I will always remember that fondly. But she always paid attention to those in a way that most of the other justices didn't. She always found and, it you know, for any of us who appeared before her, um, whether it was moving for admission or, or arguing, you would always get a little smile from her. A, just a little recognition to kind of build you up while you were standing at the podium, which was special. Lori and Amanda, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I will. I'll just add a quick one to what Kelsey just said, um, which is every time I had a reserved seat through chambers, she made a point to make eye contact with me when she entered the courtroom and gave me that same supportive little smile, um, which, you know, of course, delighted me every single time. I guess the, the other thing that I will say that that kind of changed about my relationship with RBG after I left Chambers, like Kelsey, I became less focused on, you know, am I doing a really good job right now? 
um, in my interactions with her. And I think it was long after the clerkship that I learned, you know, one of the most valuable lessons that, that she taught me and, and, um, and stays with me to this day, which is that even Justice Ginsburg uh, knew and, and knew well that you cannot do um, all things well all at the same time. And, you know, it was from that teaching, you know, that I had the strength to step away from my law firm career and spend more time, you know, with my children, which is what I'm doing now. Um, and it is also from that teaching that I know that when I choose to, you know, step back into the ring, either as a practicing lawyer or, or something else, that I will be fully capable of doing that very well again, but that there is a time you know, for all things. And we, we can't be everything, you know, all at the same time. And I think she was, you know, she'd be the first to admit that she leaned on Marty when she needed to, to be the primary parent at times in her career. And I think that that is, you know, probably one of the most um, underrated but important parts of her legacy for, for women who are trying to be um, parents at the same time as having fulfilling careers. Amanda? Yeah, I'll pick up on what Lori was just saying. I had the great good fortune to host her several times at various law schools where I've taught. And I remember I asked her, my students, they were always coming in and asking for advice. Work life, how do you find the work-life balance? I, I have students that ask me, you know, what, am I, what should I look for in a partner? So when I was interviewing her in front of the whole UC Berkeley um, law school community last last fall, I asked her what her advice was. And she said, and this this is exactly, of course, the story of her marriage with Marty. She said, choose someone, choose a partner who thinks your work is as important as theirs. And it, it was really sweet because it, I was able to draw her out and, and have her connect directly with my students, which um, was a really special moment. So many of them told me afterwards that they so appreciated that. But I, I also want to say a word about that visit. You know, she was originally supposed to come to Berkeley prior winter when she uh, broke her ribs and, and they discovered the lung cancer. The event was to honor one of her life's best friends, Herma Hill Kay, who'd been a faculty member, the second woman faculty member and the first woman dean at Berkeley Law. They wrote the first casebook on sex-based discrimination, had a wonderful friendship, and Herma had just died. So we had launched a new memorial lecture in Herma's honor, and the justice was so devoted to giving, to, to appearing for the event, that even in the original scheduling, she would not cancel. I kept calling her saying, you cannot come. You need to focus on your health. You cannot. She said, I have to honor Herma. I must do it. And it was only when I think the family and the doctors said, no, you need to cancel all your events for a while, that she finally relented. And then immediately, once she got to the other side of that difficult period, she said, all right, Amanda, when are we doing this? We have to honor Herma. And she did come out and I'm very grateful, but she was, you know, it was a struggle. She wasn't at full steam. And I was just in awe of her every moment of that visit, because the the will that drove her to want to honor this friendship and the and this this special person in her life was truly was truly inspiring. Well, picking up on the last thing Amanda just said about her fierce desire to honor her friend, I think what I carry with me is just the the inspiration of the justice's work ethic. And I don't she was not a workaholic. She was a lifeaholic. 
everything. There was no moment wasted. From the moment she got out of bed until the end of the day, she was intentional in every way. And it's the reason she was able to be so extraordinary in her work, but also so committed on a personal level to her clerks, to her friends. She made time for her workouts. Um, you can't do all of that if you are unintentional about your time, uh, if you're kind of just dawdling. Or, or <laughs> and so I, 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 having seen her go full steam for 87 years, not a moment was wasted. Uh, and I take that with me when I get up in the morning. I try to live my life the same way so that I can be the parent and mother I want to be and also fully committed to my job and try to get that workout in and try to make the phone call to the friend. Um, you can live a whole life that way and get a lot done. Uh, it's tiring, but um, it's so rewarding. And so uh, when I when I'm starting, when I start to feel tired, I think of the justice uh, and I don't want to waste any time either. That is a wonderful way to finish. Thank you, Kelsey Corcoran. Lori Alvino McGill and Amanda Tyler for joining me to talk about the personal side of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser. 